This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. So this case is um, the kind of latest of many Supreme Court challenges to the Affordable Care Act that it's faced since it was passed. And I think it's fair to say, you know, it is probably the what's the right way to describe it the dumbest the, the dumbest, dumbest of them that would be yes. one word one could use Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I've been wanting to do a show for a bit on the healthcare stakes in this election. I don't think there's any single issue which has as obviously divergent futures as healthcare, uh, depending on who wins here, because it is very clear that both sides have things they can actually do and pass. On, on the Biden side, Joe Biden has a pretty big plan to expand on the Affordable Care Act, and we're going to talk about that in some detail. But his plan is something that congressional Democrats have actually rallied around. He's very much in the center of his party on that. I think there are ways it can even get around the filibuster. So there's a really, really good chance that a Biden administration comes with a huge healthcare expansion, making Obamacare not just more like what it was supposed to be, but something big than it was ever uh, built to be. On the other hand, the Trump administration is, as we speak, in the Supreme Court trying to get Obamacare overturned. Uh, we'll find out more about that soon, but it's only been a big theme of the Amy Coney Barrett hearings. They keep saying they have a secret plan for health care. not clear that they actually do have that plan, much less that they could pass anything like it. And at the same time, they've been using regulatory authority to unwind and sabotage and, and make Obamacare more difficult to manage. Uh, coronavirus has put a very fine point on all this, creating a shocking rise in the number of uninsured people in this country, uh, even going on top of a rise that had been continuing, that had begun under Donald Trump in 2017 and 2018. So the underlying healthcare insurance and healthcare system situation is getting worse as well. Who, who would I want to talk about this with? Who, who would one find to talk about this with, except for Sarah Cliff, my former co-host on The Weeds, my former co-wonk blogger, um, now, of course, at the New York Times. So this one uh, is both, I think, really interesting, but but for me, of course, a lot of fun. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Sarah the Great Cliff. Sarah Cliff, welcome back. Thank you for having me back. I'm excited to be here. It's so great. I'll, I'll, I'll podcast without you, a tragedy. Oh, don't tell Matt that. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's good that we're there, but yes. you know, it's uh, we're you're very missed. Um, oh well, thank you. I miss it. 
All right, let's begin with our, our longtime shared obsession, which is Obamacare, because I think Obamacare is the like the foundation on which all healthcare policy is now either going to be built or, or be destroyed. It's been more than 10 years since the law rolled uh, was passed, um, and so we actually have a lot of information on it now, and you've been doing some great work looking back at it. So what can we say about it? What did the law do well? What did it do poorly? Okay, so it definitely got more people insured, and I think that's just not a point that's even debatable. You've seen about like 20 million or so Americans gain health coverage. And you've seen some of that erode under President Trump. But I think that's like, I think ages ago, probably for Vox, I wrote a story about some of the metrics you could look at. And one of them was like, did it get people covered? And the answer there, like definitely yes. Did it reduce health costs? Um I think it's like more muddled there. Um, Like, you know, Ezra, there were like a ton of experiments in cost savings experiments like ACOs and different ways Medicare could pay differently to try and reduce healthcare spending. Bundled payments. Bundled payments, readmissions, all the greatest hits. Um, I don't cover those quite as closely, but from the coverage I have done, my sense is some of them are working, some of them aren't quite working as well. But there's also like another way you can measure cost um, that, that you've written about this is cost to consumers. And I I think this is one of the reasons why you see the ACA insuring more people, but people not necessarily feeling like everything's going, you know, fine and dandy, is that you're seeing patients being asked to spend a lot, that the deductibles are going up and the cost sharing and the co-payments, like all of that stuff hasn't really been solved and prices in the United States remain, you know, the highest in the world. And then I guess you could also measure it on favorability would be another metric you could think about. Like, has it worked to sell the American people on this policy, which they were, you know, really divided on when it passed? And it has a tiny bit, you know, the Affordable Care Act is more popular than it was when it passed, but it still tends to, um, you know, poll somewhere in the 50s. It's not like a runaway success. There was a pretty interesting poll that we had yesterday that showed um, 55% approval for Obamacare and 67% approval for the public option. And we can we can talk more about the, the late, great, revived public option later. But you haven't really seen... I think there was this theory when we were covering the passage of Obamacare that once it was implemented and people saw the benefits it would just become hugely popular like Medicare. And we just like have not seen that runaway popularity, at least yet. I do wonder how popular anything that's really in the political scrum can get. I've, I've been surprised, actually, uh, that it has gotten to mid-50s. There's actually a morning consult poll, which seems like maybe it was an outlier, but had it in the low 60s recently. Uh, that's been a pretty, a pretty big rise. But I want to go back to some of these pieces of it, because something you've written about, something I've written about a bit, is it within the insurance expansion, there were two things happening. There was the thing that got all of the attention, which were these private insurance marketplaces and competition and silver and gold plans and bronze <laughs> plans and like a million you know, ideas from every economist in the country about how to structure that. And then there was yield boring Medicaid expansion. Yep. And the Medicaid expansion even got cut up by the Supreme Court. So even today, 14 states have not taken the federal government's offer of what is functionally a nearly free Medicaid expansion. But still, it looks like the Medicaid expansion has been the real coverage success in all this. Do you, do you want to talk a little bit about what we've learned about the private yeah. public split there? 
Yeah, I think you're 100% right. And if you look back, as, as I'm sure you like to do, at old CBO reports from the when the law was being passed. You, you don't have to tell people what I do on weekends. <laughs> I, I know all your secrets, um, the secret CBO reports. Um, so they thought like coverage would be pretty evenly split between enrollment in the marketplaces, those, you know, those private plans you mentioned, and enrollment in Medicaid. And they got the headline figure of how many people would sign up for Obamacare more or less right. But it turns out it was way more concentrated in Medicaid, which is even more surprising considering, like you said, we have like 14 or so states that are not participating in the expansion at this moment. I think before going into this, a few things going on. Like Medicaid was it was, you know, seen as a, pro- a program for low-income Americans, like an entitlement program. And the idea, I think the assumption a lot of folks working on this had going on to this is like, if you could get private insurance, you'll probably just want that. Usually the networks are better. You get faster access to doctors and more specialists. Um, but it turns out, and like in retrospect, of course this makes sense, like Medicaid is, is free. There's no deductible. There's no co-payments or or premiums. And that's a really, really good deal. Um, So you've really seen, I think one of the things I've learned about the Affordable Care Act that I didn't know when it was being passed is how much enrollment and what people sign up for and if they sign up, it really depends a lot on a lot on like how much that monthly premium is going to cost them. It doesn't, we'll probably talk about this more later. It doesn't depend on is there a mandate to buy insurance? It doesn't depend on like all these, you know, advertising bells and whistles or the network. It's just like how much is this monthly premium going to cost me? And with Medicaid, you know, the monthly premium is is typically nothing. There's some Trump administration waivers that do lead to small premiums, but by and large, most Medicaid enrollees are not paying premiums. Um, and so one of the, I mean, one of the things I find really interesting is you actually see Republican voters who generally oppose Obamacare embracing Medicaid expansion. You've seen Missouri, Missouri and Nebraska both vote in favor of Medicaid expansion this year, despite their governors and their legislatures not moving that policy forward. So I think it's kind of been the runaway success of the Affordable Care Act. And like, if you think back to the 2017 repeal push, it was really the Medicaid expansion that got a few Republican senators like hung up on not doing repeal. It wasn't as much about the private marketplaces, but it was the idea of kicking all these people who had Medicaid off of the program that a lot of, in a lot of ways, like doomed the repeal efforts that they were working on. And so then I want to talk a bit about the private marketplaces and, and as you say, why those have not been as successful as I think some of the, the bill's framers hoped. You, you gestured a couple minutes ago towards an idea I have, which is the, the paradox of cost control, which is that politicians often think about cost control from like the governmental level or the national level. So they'll look at national health expenditures, which are is the amount of money the entire country spends mm-hmm. on healthcare, or they'll look at you know federal budget expenditures, which is how much the federal government spends on healthcare. And one way you can get those expenditures down is you can cost shift over to people. You can raise premiums, you can raise copays, you can raise deductibles, you can narrow your networks, you can. Do all kinds of things to make healthcare more expensive or more difficult to use. And the real economist way of thinking about this is that when people skin in the game and they have to pay a lot to use their healthcare, they'll only get healthcare they really need. 
And if they only get healthcare they really need, then what you're going to do by by doing this kind of cost shifting is move towards higher quality healthcare and save money. And nobody's really going to get hurt, even though it's going to be kind of unpleasant. And so Democrats embrace this because uh, a bunch of reasons. But another was that they decided they were going to keep the cost of the bill under a trillion dollars over 10 years. Mm -hmm. And so like that helped them do that. But now you got this bill that... Uh, in terms of what people want from cost control, which is they don't pay much money, which it, uh, on the other hand can make national expenditures go up, they didn't get that. If you're in the private market, you have really high deductibles oftentimes, mm -hmm. pretty high co-pays. Can you talk a bit about that piece of it? And did that surprise the bill's framers? Have the cost been higher than they expected, lower? Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you how do you look at the, the cost sharing problem? Yeah, so I did a story about this uh, in March, you know, right around the law's 10-year anniversary. And I was talking to some of the people who wrote the legislation because I, I agree, like, these deductibles and the cost sharing, they've been a huge challenge for the Affordable Care Act. And if you look at, like, polling data or you talk to Obamacare enrollees about what they don't like about their health plan, it's always just the cost of getting medicine. Like, there was that story I did from Kentucky in 2016 with Obamacare enrollees who voted for Trump. And a lot of them were saying, like, you know, I, I I have insurance, but I don't have enough money to go to the doctor. And, like, what am I even paying for? For You know, some of these plans can have $6,000 individual, $6, individual deductibles, you know, up to, like, 10,000 family deductibles. They're really high. You know, when I talked to folks who worked on this, you know, they really referenced that $1 trillion figure that they were trying to stay under. And there's only so many levers you can pull to do that. And one of the levers you pull is pushing more of the dollars onto the patients. Um, and they felt like the politics of the moment were that you just could not move this forward if you went too high. I think in retrospect, a lot of them wish they hadn't accepted the $1 trillion limit or they had not agreed to the um, provision that the entire law would be paid for. They feel like that was a bit of an unforced error, but it's it's hard, right? Like hindsight is twenty twenty, And at the time, a lot of folks felt like this was just so necessary. And not policy folks. I mean, there are all these moderate Democrats who are demanding this shit. Yeah, exactly. So you have- I mean, they all like, lost their seats because it's a yes. dumb idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So you have like all these senators demanding it, you know, in order to sign on to it. So it just became this like non-starter. You know, like when I talk to someone like Kathleen Sebelius, who says like looking, former HHS secretary during most, a lot of the Obamacare stuff, um, you know, she would say, you know, yeah, I wish we, you know, had just spent more and given people better coverage. Um, but it's a real thorn in the Affordable Care Act side um, is that these plans, you know, I kind of get it when some people tell me, you know, I'd rather go uninsured than have a $6,000 deductible. It's kind of understandable, right? Like, what exactly are you paying for? I can understand the calculation for the people who decide not to carry coverage in that kind of scenario. Let me ask you about another thorn in, in the bill side, because you wrote a piece yesterday, which really struck me. Um, and it's been something I've been thinking about a lot, too which is the individual mandate is effectively gone now. It's a penalty that has been reduced down to zero. So not really a penalty at all. And the bill seems more or less fine to be working the yeah. way it had before that. Um, that was not what a lot of the people who constructed this bill thought would happen. So, so how do you assess the individual mandate now? 
I think it was a lot less potent of a policy than we all thought it was a decade ago. Like, you know, I wrote about this in my story, but you know, like the three-legged stool that everyone talked about in 2010. I do, for my sins. (laughs) There was this idea that if you're going to expand coverage, you need three policies. You need, um, you know, to get rid of pre-existing conditions, you let everybody in, and then you give subsidies to make sure the insurance is affordable, and you make sure everybody buys so that you don't have a death spiral, so that you, you know, get the healthy people into the market. And there was this kind of, it was like conventional wisdom. If you cut off any leg of the stool, you know, the whole thing crumbles. And this was the argument the Obama administration made in court trying to save the individual mandate and the Affordable Care Act. And um, it tra- I was talking to an economist about it. And he's saying, you know, it turns out like you cut off a leg and it's actually kind of fine. It's like a little wobbly, but it's basically just a table um, with two legs instead of a stool. And I think, you know, when... Economists were thinking about the mandate. They were looking at the experience Massachusetts had. It was relatively successful. The mandate was not nearly as controversial there as it was um, in the national context. And so there was this belief, you know, going on what little information they had, because we just had not done an insurance expansion like this nationally, that, of course, you need the mandate. It, like, makes sense in theory But a few things happen, I would say. The mandate ends up being much smaller than a lot of folks initially wanted. So it still remains the case for a lot of people, it is cheaper to pay the mandate penalty than it is to buy a plan. So it's like a nudge, but it's not like it's it's still going to save you money to not buy health insurance. There's also some research out there um, from an economist at University of Indiana that I didn't get into that piece I heard about later, but that also finds uh, the mandate penalty was not being assessed nearly as highly as it could have. It was not generating the revenue you'd expect with the number of people um, who who were eligible for these fines. So a lot of times the fines weren't as high as you'd expect. And it was just, you know, it was constantly debated. It, It was seen as, you know, bad and invalid by a lot of Republican voters. So if you have this policy that is constantly, you know, talked about, as so terrible and, um, you know, not seen as valid, you can see how that also diminishes its power. So, you know, I believed it back in 2010 that the mandate was crucial because all the sources I talked to said it was crucial. But I think a lot of economists have changed their views on that. You know, I've changed my view on that, too. One of the things that surprises me is that, um, you know, Joe Biden proposes bringing back the mandate. I, I don't fully understand that given that it seems to be doing fine without it, it surprises me you'd want to bring back such an unpopular policy that isn't lifting a ton of um, policy weight. I mean, I'm curious, how, what do you think about, like, how do you, I'm curious, I wanted to ask you when I knew we were doing the podcast, kind of how you think about the mandate saga. I have very complicated feelings on, on this line <laughs> of research and obviously emotionally complicated, so, yeah, but, sure. but technically complicated too. So one thing is, I am not sure the mandate is working really any differently right now than it was a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. How many people know the penalty has gone down to zero? Yeah. When you're dealing with the people who would be paying it, so people who are usually, they need health insurance, they're not quite able to afford it, um, or they need a nudge to get it, they're a little bit disaffected from things like buying health insurance, maybe they're young, you don't think they need it. These are the people often least likely to be following a somewhat weird policy fight where it's not even that the the policy is gone. It just you have to do all the normal things like put down on your tax form if you have health insurance, but Mm -hmm. then just nothing happens to you if you don't. 
So one question I've had about it is really if the mandate, no mandate is as sharp a break point as some of the people doing this research think it is. If the mandate primarily acts both because it was weak to begin with mm -hmm. and then confusing when it was gotten rid of, if it primarily acts as a psychological nudge, the what people know is that like hazily out there, there's a mandate you should get health insurance. They knew that when the law started because there was a lot of talk about it. And they more or less still think that now. And I, I know there are some polls saying some people do think the mandate's gone, but there have also been polls showing a lot of people think Obamacare has already been repealed. So I'm a right. little, yes. I'm a little yeah. skeptical of, of these very like narrow polling questions on this because people have very confused views on what has happened to the law. Lots of people think the law is already gone. And a lot of people benefiting from the law don't know that it's the law they're benefiting from or using or whatever. And so I just don't know what to make of the uh, of the question here. I think it's clear the mandate was always weaker than it needed to be to fully achieve its purpose. I think it seems plausible that it helped get people enrolling, particularly at the beginning. And then I'm a little uncertain if I believe that in the minds of the public, it has truly been repealed enough mm -hmm. that it is having no effect now. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm also open to the idea that it never mattered all that much and that really what Democrats should have done is simply make the subsidies a lot bigger from the beginning or just done a, a, a big public expansion of Medicaid up to 400% of the poverty line or something like that. I don't, I, I think it's clear the mandate was not the best of all possible worlds. Democrats built this plan in a way they thought would appeal to Republicans and instead Republicans took the Republican part of the plan and made it the center of all of their attacks. So I don't think Democrats would run this play the same way again and correctly so. But um, but I'm not I'm not sure I feel confident uh, laying down a judgment on whether or not the mandate has enrolled people and how many and if it has changed or not. Yeah, I think the other thing that drove home for me, like reading that body of research, is just the importance of the importance of the subsidies, and that actually ties into the Medicaid side of it. Like it seems like even more so than what we know about the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of the subsidy, it seems pretty clear that what is very effective is like making health insurance cheap or free. Like that seems to be the real policy lever if you're trying to get people signed up for health coverage. So that brings us to Joe Biden's plan. Ah, yes. What what does Joe Biden's plan do? What does Joe Biden's plan do? So it's essentially like Obamacare Plus is how I think about it. So it keeps the Affordable Care Act, which is quite different from what the Trump administration is trying to do. And then it builds on top of it. So I'd say like the key one is doing a public option, which is this idea that has been kicking around. I mean, I was going to say since the ACA debate, but even before that, but really was a big part of the Affordable Care Act debate was should we allow all Americans to sign up for Medicare or some, you know, some Medicare type um, health plan that is run by the government, doesn't have a profit motive and could compete against um, private health plans to potentially lo offer lower premiums. And then, you know, the other things are increasing tax credits, which I think would probably be decently effective given, you know, what we were just talking about. So making the tax credits more generous and kind of lowering the amount of income that um, individuals are expected to pay for their health insurance. Under the, for, under the Affordable Care Act, there's a limit on, let's see if I can phrase this in the least confusing way. There's You get tax credits to help you spend no more than like 10% of your income on health insurance. Um, Biden says he'll lower that to 8.5%. And the tax credits will go further up the income scale. So right now they end at 400% of income and they really start petering out around like 250, 300% of, um, oh, sorry, a percent of federal poverty line. 
so the tax subsidies would go much further up the um, income ladder. And then I guess the last major thing, but that kind of relates to what we already talked about, is um, the public option would be available for free in states that did not expand Medicaid. So that would kind of get at this group of about 5 million or so adults who are living in states that don't that didn't participate in, in Medicaid expansion. It would be a way to get those people coverage. And the idea is those people would not pay a premium to enroll in that. Um, there's some other things going on there too, like a ban on surprise billing, some drug negotiations. I wonder where they drug- got that idea. <laughs> Hard to say. Um, and then some things about, you know, drug pricing and competition and healthcare. But I'd say like the kind of meat of it is ramping Obamacare up and, you know, kind of creating the more liberal version of Obamacare that was floated but wasn't passed during the debate in 2010. I, I want to dig into a few pieces of this, and I want to start with the one that almost never gets really discussed, which is the subsidy increases. During mm-hmm. the during the presidential primary debates, there's a lot of talk about public options versus Medicare, so, so let's come to that in a minute. But the other thing, as I understand it, that it does is it ties the subsidies and the savings to gold plans and yeah. not silver ones. Oh, can, really, can you talk really a bit about what that weeds? means? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that's going to be that's yeah, going to no. be a big deal, right? Yeah, no, it is a big deal. Um so the way the Affordable Care Act works is you have these metal level tiers of insurance and basically the better the metal, kind of the more generous the coverage. Each of these has an actuarial value attached to it. Actuarial value is the amount the insurance would pay for an average person. And it's a helpful figure to have beyond like premiums and deductibles and cost sharing because it kind of adds all that cost sharing up and says for an average person in this plan, you know, it would cover 80% of the healthcare costs. Um, So on the Obamacare markets, a bronze plan has an actuarial value of 60%, silver is 70%, um, gold is 80 and platinum is 90 Right now, the way the subsidies work on the marketplace is that you get enough subsidies to make a silver plan affordable to you. And again, the definition of affordable, it's based on your income, um, which, you know, someone who has a lower income is expected to spend a smaller share, both a smaller dollar amount and a smaller share of their income on health insurance. Um And so the government is essentially saying, we think our responsibility is to make this kind of mid-level plan affordable to you. And I will say 70%. So so they're tethered to the silver level, which is 70%. That's much less generous than employer coverage. Employer coverage tends to be more in like the 80-90% range. So if you're getting insurance at work, this is probably a product that's not quite as good as what you get. What Joe Biden is suggesting is tethering the subsidies to a gold plan. So saying, instead of making silver affordable to you, we are going to make gold affordable to you. So it's essentially, it's making the insurance more generous. Um, And it feels like small and wonky, but it could be the difference between, you know, like a $3,000 deductible and a $1,000 deductible or, you know, a smaller or or being able to get that lower deductible at the exact same premium. Um, So that's kind of what's going on with that, like, re- rebasing of um, what the government thinks 
is the plan that they are, you know, that is appropriate to make affordable for Americans. Okay, so that is their answer to the fact that deductibles are too high and the coverage is too skimpy for a lot of people in terms of what they can afford. At the same time, they bring in this public option. And I want to note something because I think this is important on another technical level. One reason Biden's plan is not like a fun thing politically to talk about is it's a lot of very technical changes to the Affordable Care Act that would matter a lot. But yeah, but if one thing you don't like about the Affordable Care Act is that it's a very complex technocratic plan, this is very much embracing <laughs> that. Anyway, yes. public option. There have always been two kinds of public options, and in a weird way, I would say even more than that. But the public option that got considered in legislative language during Obamacare was a public option that could not attach itself to Medicare prices. And Sarah, you've done a million things on, on pricing, <laughs> but Medicare pays lower prices because of its big bargaining power. And so if you can move that over to a, a public option, that public option will be a lot cheaper for the same insurance than normal insurance would be, than private insurance would be. In Obamacare, the public option could not do that. In Biden's public option, it can do that. And so there's going to be now, in theory, as I understand it, this public option on all the exchanges and available to everybody who can't get Medicaid um, through their because their state has rejected mm-hmm. the expansion, that will have Medicare buying power. And so in theory, should become a pretty I would expect it to become a pretty dominant player on the exchanges simply because it will be able to offer more for less. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of the theory of the case that, you know, Biden is making here um, is that if you can get those lower prices, then because it really isn't a ton of sense in creating a public option that that can't get those prices. I, I guess I don't fully understand what its role would be. I guess it wouldn't have a profit motive. So that might be one way. But And competition in places where somebody's a, where you have basically like yeah, an insurance Yeah, I just monopolist. don't know how well it would be able to compete with like a major insurance company sure. if it didn't have kind of that base to begin with. So I think this version of the policy, like if you're thinking the goal is to reduce what Americans are paying for healthcare, like this version of the policy makes a lot more sense to me than the other one you outlined. But, you, you know, the flip side of that is that it's going to get a lot more pushback. And, but I think it's also, I mean, I think there's a question, because this came up a bit with the Affordable Care Act, of like, insurance is a pretty sticky product. Once people buy a plan, or once they get used to what they have, they seem to be pretty um, reluctant to switch. And like, back in 2010, there was all this like hemming and hawing, like, you know, are employers going to drop insurance and everyone's going to move to the marketplaces? Because why would employers keep subsidizing insurance when there's this marketplace where anyone can get coverage and a bunch of people are going to get subsidies. And you know, some people were projecting, you know, by you know the moment we're speaking now, millions of people will have moved from employer-sponsored insurance into the marketplaces. And it just didn't happen. Uh, you know, I think people are, are averse to change in healthcare. So I think that would be the one thing pushing against a public option taking over the marketplace is that people tend to like be a little wary of switching. The other thing in terms of like the size of effect this could have, it's important to remember the marketplaces are still a relatively small segment of the health system. You have like between seven to 10 million people buying coverage there each year. Again, maybe that changes if you have a public option with a better prices, but you still have like employer-sponsored insurance as kind of the dominant source of coverage in the United States. And after, you know, seeing what happened with the marketplaces and that shift towards 
individual coverage not really happening. I guess I'm a little more skeptical. You'd see like a bunch of people kind of switching to that coverage. But but maybe you would. Maybe the prices would be good enough that you would see some kind of shift there. Yezra Klancho will be back after a short break. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels. But now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. When you think about these public options and plans and so on, one question is always, are you building something to be a backstop to the current system? It's for people who are not being well-served, right? It's a backstop for people who can't get Medicaid because Texas hasn't expanded Medicaid. Or it's a backstop to people who can't afford good private insurance in a particular area, or maybe they don't have enough choices in a particular area. Or are you trying to build an almost Trojan horse kind of thing? Are you trying to create an option people want to move over to? So it's like, think back to the Democratic primary. You would have these debates and it's like one poll was Bernie Sanders, like Medicare for all, get rid of private insurance. Then there was Pete Buttigieg, say, and he had a plan that was more of a Trojan horse plan. It had this like pretty big public option and you could really see the public option probably wasn't going to take up the entire market, but very quickly growing such that the dominant insurance in America was public, um, overwhelmingly so at every age group. And then Biden's plan is not that. One thing they've done, and I've talked to them about this at length and tried to get them to explain to me why, and I never think the explanation makes any sense, is they will not let employers buy into the public option, and they will not let you take 
the money your employer spends on insurance, that tax de- tax exempt money, and use that to buy into the public option. So like the public option here is really only for like the limited number of people in the individual market um, or people who decide to reject their employer sponsored insurance and pay for the public option out of pocket, which would be a pretty unusual thing to do because you'd be like giving up all that tax deductible side of things and um and your employer's contribution. And it just it drives me a little bit crazy because if this is a good idea, you should just do it. But the Biden people really don't want to do anything that could be seen as destabilizing employer-based insurance. And they don't want to create something where employers are going to start moving their people onto public insurance. But I think it's a real mistake. Like I think the employer-based system is a mistake. It's a bad thing in America and we should get beyond it. And so Biden, I think, I think his plan is quite good as an Obamacare expansion plan. But this critical thing where you're opening up like your better Obamacare so it can absorb more of the employer market too and create something bigger and more integrated, they have like they've thrown down a wall. And it's like a wonky technical thing, but it's super important. Like if this works, it still can't work for most people. Like Vox Media cannot buy into the public option because it is cheaper. The New York Times cannot buy into the public option because it is cheaper. Like they've decided to not give people that option. And it I I, I don't understand why. And I was hoping the Sanders Biden task force would fix it. And it didn't. And it it all drives me a little bit nuts. But it also I mean, so this is I, I was, you know, getting ready for this podcast. I was thinking about kind of Joe right Joe Biden more long term on healthcare and like whether, you know, I think one of the things we've discussed many times on the weeds is you, you know, one thing that's important is your policies, but the other is prioritization and like what's going to come first and what are you going to put your muscle into? And what you're saying here, you know, this kind of wonky decision they've made that limits the reach of the public option, you know, it reminds me of Biden's kind of role at the start of the Affordable Care Act where he was kind of on the, there was this debate within the Obama White House, like, do we go big on healthcare or not? And he was on, you know, with like Rahm Emanuel, this like, go smaller, like do a smaller packages of forms. This is going to eat up your first term. It's not worth going big on this policy issue. And I feel like you see some, you know, I could spin it either way. Like, I do feel like you see some echoes of that in the policies being proposed here. It's obviously not the Medicare for all that Sanders would propose. Like you're saying, it's a public option that's made less potent by this decision on employers. But in in a way that kind of fits with what I've seen from Biden in the past on healthcare. And when I think about the moment he's going to be coming into office, if he does win, you know, in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, you know, it seems like badly needing a stimulus bill that won't get passed. I I guess I just, uh, I question how much would actually get done on healthcare, how big it would be. And it's hard for me to see a Biden administration where healthcare once again becomes the signature policy issue. Um, I kind of see it. I don't know how you see it, but it feels like a little more back seat to me, just kind of looking at what we know now. I so I've I've thought about this a lot and and I've reported on it a bunch with um Senate Democrats in particular, um House Democrats too, but I've talked to a bunch of the key Democrats on Senate finance who would be pretty much running a a, a healthcare expansion. I don't think I think healthcare should be the main priority of Biden's first term. I think it should be climate change. That said, I don't think what he's proposing actually is such a hard lift. 
And I think that he's proposing something not only in the center of where the Democratic Senate caucus already is, but if anything, maybe a little bit moderate even from that. So I don't think this is one where he's going to like have to pull the Democrats way to the left on it, which actually, as much as people feel Obamacare was compromised down, getting your Ben Nelsons and Mm -hmm. your Joe Liebermans and so on onto that bill was really, really, really tough. I don't think what Biden is proposing has that quality. Now, obviously, that's before a massive interest group mobilization <laughs> and so on. But but I think they could do it. And they could do almost all this one through budget reconciliation, even if they didn't get rid of the filibuster, which I, I hope they do. And so this is actually something that I could imagine passing in a couple of months without it being like the biggest thing of his first term. Right. I don't think this is like creating Obamacare from scratch. I mean, they did a big reauthorization and reconstruction of No Child Left Behind in the second term that was negotiated between Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray. In a weird way, this strikes me as a little bit more like that. It will be more public, more of a dogfight because it is a more public bill. But this strikes me as an expansion of something, not a creation. Now, the public option is kind of different on that, but and it will cost money. But I don't know. I could sort of imagine this being like the third most important bill or the fourth most important bill of a Biden first term, which they do in a couple of months, not as Obamacare was like the headline issue for two years. I don't know. I I disagree with I do not see this passing in the first few months. And I guess like I I'm kind of informed by I've been covering the surprise billing debate pretty closely. And you have this issue where everyone generally agrees, like, the thing is bad, we should fix the thing. It's a small thing to fix, these people getting surprise bills from out-of-network providers. And the healthcare lobbies are so strong that it's been, like, 18 months. And despite, you know, the White House saying we should do this, and bipartisan legislation, it's just completely stuck and probably not going anywhere. And I feel like the, the narrative you're telling me I think it underestimates like the amount of debate that would go into this and the amount of pushback there would be to doing a policy like this. I I think just looking at other healthcare issues, I don't expect it to be. And I don't know, I feel like the environment's really different from when they did the no child left behind authorization versus, you know, the more as as you're highly aware, the more polarized environment that a legislation like this would be going into. I mean, maybe there's some advantages. They don't spend forever trying to record Republican votes like they did with the ACA, but it is really hard for me to see this getting done in the first few months. I'm going to do what I almost never do here and take the optimistic side of a a legislative (laughs) fight. And I'm not saying I really believe this. If it worked out the other way, won't surprise me at all. But something about surprise billing, which you have been, and and people should know, like that you've been, I think, the key reporter driving this as like a, as a national issue is part of the problem is that none of the key political figures care about it enough. Yes, the White House says we should do something about it, but the White House doesn't care about anything at all and does not ride legislative herd. So they've not made it a big priority for them and they're not like fighting to get it passed. In the House, I mean, I think people should know that it is a Democratic Ways and Means chair or Energy mm-hmm. Commerce, Richard Neal. Um, um, ways and Means. Ways yeah. and Means, who has been a huge problem on this. It's a Democrat who mm-hmm. deserves like a lot of the criticism for this not getting done. Um, and so don't think that all Democrats are, are, are on board with, you know, important progressive reforms here. But it's not also been like the key thing of any of the Democratic interest groups, like the progressive organizations aren't mobilized on it in a big way. It's not like move on and indivisible or 
getting all their members out on this. And so I do think it's a little bit different than the potential of a unified Democratic majority that feels a real pressure to deliver things quickly. And just one thing that I think is different about this healthcare plan than, say, a Green New Deal is as much as House Dems have proposed a Green New Deal package um, at this point or a a big climate package, it's actually quite good. uh, There is really not consensus among Democrats about what to do there. They're going to have to basically build that from scratch in the House, building on what they've done in the Senate and then merging it with whatever it is that Joe Biden wants to do. Like that is like a huge year long process. Like you can see that one coming. Whereas here, if they want to pass something they more or less have on the shelf pretty quickly, I in some ways, the reason I think healthcare will move higher up the agenda than even I would put it is because I think Democrats are more agreed on it. Now, as you say, if they decide they don't want to pass bills and they instead want to cater to interest groups, then they're not going to pass bills and they'll cater to interest groups. But I think that a Biden administration that wants to get things done and show that like they are using their mandate and and ha- will have something to run for re-election on, this is going to be one of the easier things they can do. Um with the exception maybe of of direct economic stimulus packages as a as a consequence of coronavirus but everything else on their agenda from anything around police brutality to democracy reform to climate change to tax it like literally anything everything else is a harder lift in terms of how fractured democrats are than simply adding a little bit onto obamacare and bringing the subsidies down some like it's they've propose something that you could pass. Like Michael Bennett is not going to stand up and say, like, you can't do this one. It's too liberal. Like they're they've like aimed something at like the center right of their caucus, which, you know, again, if they can't pass this, then they're not really going to be able to pass anything. Wait, and does your version of this suppose the filibuster is eliminated or that they do this all through reconciliation? I, I don't know yet. So I think they could do this one. I mean, you should tell me what you think on this. I think they can do the Biden bill through budget reconciliation. I'm not sure. So I don't know. That's so I don't know. I think the subsidies you could do. I'm not quite sure about the public option. I just I, I do not know enough about Senate policy, Senate, you know, procedural policy. I think the subsidies seem clearly those are tweaking numbers, just like the mandate was moved down to zero, you know, through re- reconciliation with Republicans. I'm just not sure changing eligibility for Medicare kind of where that falls. Well, look, they they need to get rid of the filibuster. <laughs> they really do. They really, I heard really Ezra do. Ezra Klein show up. Uh, yeah, or Ezra Klein essay about that recently. they I've done some writing on it, but but yeah, <laughs> look, on some level, Democrats will have to make a decision about whether or not they want to pass things. If they don't want to pass things, then they're not going to be able to pass things. If they do want to pass things, they can. Um, I've talked to budget reconciliation, people who think you can do a public option through it, particularly if you're attaching it to Medicare. But um, but there's a reasonable argument you can't. It depends on who the parliamentarian is, and that depends on whether or not you're willing to overrule the parliamentarian, which you're allowed to do. And so, again, if Democrats want to pass stuff, they can. And if they don't, they don't. But I I just think if they are in a world where they've decided they want to have legislative achievements in Joe Biden's first term, which I really hope they decide that is a world they would like to see, then this is not one that would be incredibly hard for them. It's not the most divisive one on their agenda. The component parts are very popular. They probably shouldn't add back an individual mandate. Just do the popular stuff, pay for half of it and get out of there. Um, But but if they decide they don't want to pass things and they want to let every interest group cut everything up and they, you know, don't want to, you know, they want to let Republicans obstruct everything they want to do, then yeah, like this, like everything else is going to fail um, is, is kind of my my handicapping of the big picture there. 
But so who, I'm curious, because you, I think you've done more reporting space than I have, because you were mentioning the difference of surprise billing. And I agree with you. One of the challenges it struggles with is that it's no one's, everyone's like generally likes it, but it doesn't really have a strong champion um, on either side. But who, in your view, is the champion who's going to like, because there will be the insurance industry blowback and hospitals aren't going to like it because it's going to reduce their rates. Like, you know, all the various industry actors are not going to be, we're not fans of the public options and likely remain still, um, you know, skeptical of it. Like, who is the champion who decides like, yes, we want to fight back against that. That makes it different from surprise billing. Only a third of you are going to get this joke, but all the lights in the arena just went off and Jim Ross just screamed, well, that's Ron Wyden's music. (laughs) (laughs) One thing about healthcare is that a lot of Democrats want to do healthcare. They just like that, I think, is something different about it. But I think that Wyden uh, on Senate finance, he wants to do a big healthcare push and have that as part of his legacy if he's finance chair, which he would be probably if Democrats take back the majority there. I think Pelosi wants it. I think Pelosi sees Obamacare as very much her like central legislative achievement as speaker and cementing Obamacare, making it better, getting the public option that she always wanted in there in there would be huge for her. It's a it's an important priority for her. And I think Biden and his administration want that, too. And so I don't think it I don't think this is one of those where you need to look hard to find it. I think the question is like the way I could see it not happening is that Democrats have just too many other things that feel too pressing or they get caught up in like an endless thicket of Republican obstruction. Or, and this will, I think, move us a little bit further into this conversation, or there's an adverse Supreme Court ruling right before Mm -hmm. Joe Biden becomes president. And of course, we're going to be in the world, too, um, just to signpost this conversation of what happens if Donald Trump wins. But I want to use this now to move to, to the Supreme Court ruling because it's gotten a lot of attention lately. It's been in the presidential debates. Amy Coney Barrett will probably be seated on the Supreme Court when it happens. And there is some chance that the Supreme Court can simply say Obamacare is gone. So what is this case and 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 how do you how do you think about it? So this case is um the kind of latest of many Supreme Court challenges to the Affordable Care Act that it's faced since it was passed and I think it's fair to say you know it is probably the What's the right way to describe it? The dumbest, the dumbest, the dumbest of them. That would yes. be one word one could use. I mean, I know you're a New York Times reporter, can't say that, but I, I can say this is the flat out dumbest of the challenges. <laughs> I would say from the the experts I talk to, they believe it has little legal merit and would not be successful. So I guess you could use whatever whatever phrase you would like. You know, look. So this is a case. I guess we can go through exactly what this is. You know, to explain kind of why it has this reputation. You know, this is a case where they are challenging, and they being a group of Republican attorneys general are challenging the entire Affordable Care Act as unconstitutional, and they're making a two-part legal argument. The first part of the argument is actually pretty straightforward and wouldn't be that damaging to the Affordable Care Act. They are looking back at the 2017 tax bill that Republicans passed, which set the penalty for not carrying health insurance down from like $750 to $0. They couldn't eliminate the actual provision because of um, they didn't have enough votes, but through reconciliation, they could just zero out the penalty. The case makes the argument that, you know, initially this penalty was upheld by um, the Supreme Court as a tax. And if there is no dollar figure, it's no longer a tax and the mandate is unconstitutional. That's like, 
I mean, they could rule the mandate unconstitutional. And like we discussed, it probably wouldn't change much. It wouldn't really damage the Affordable Care Act at this point. But what they do is they make a second step argument and say the mandate is so crucial to the Affordable Care Act that if you, the court, strike down the mandate, you have to strike down the rest of the Affordable Care Act, the pre-existing protection provisions and the Medicaid expansion and like even the calorie labels and your fast food restaurants that tell you how many calories are in your food. Um, all of that is kind of made null and void because you cannot strike down the mandate without striking down the rest of the law. Um, so that is the argument. Um, it did receive a favorable ruling in district court. You had a district court judge in Texas say they agreed on both of those things. Yes, the mandate is unconstitutional. Yes, the rest of the law has to fall. Um, there's some confusing legal back and forth where the appeals court didn't really rule on the issue. And then there was a request for expedited review at the Supreme Court that did get accepted. So that's kind of where we are right now um, with the district court ruling in the challenger's favor. It's sitting in front of the Supreme Court. And um, the legal argument, you know, even folks who supported previous Obamacare challenges find this legal argument very tenuous, particularly that second step in the argument. Um, it does not seem like there's any evidence from the congressional record that when this tax penalty was zeroed out, the aim of the policy was to nullify the entire Affordable Care Act. Um, well, fun fact, they tried during that same they, I do remember in Congress of an to Obama. repeal the entire yes. Affordable Care Act. And instead of doing that, they simply zeroed out the penalty yes, later. Yes, I, I do remember. And so we actually have some legislative some sort of effort here. in that direction. Um, and meanwhile, the bill is operating with it. So the other thing that this case tries to say is like looking back at um, arguments made during the bill's passage is to say the individual mandate is so important to the working of the bill that the bill cannot function at any reasonable level in its absence. And the problem with that argument is the bill is currently functioning at a reasonable level in its absence. So on the one hand, Congress could have repealed the entire law, but it didn't. It could have decided that the law without an individual mandate couldn't stand, but it didn't. And it could have been the case that the law collapsed into a complete hellscape mess when the mandate was zeroed out, but it didn't. And so this case says, well, notwithstanding all of that, <laughs> <laughs> uh, please strike down the mandate and then say that the intention of Congress was this law cannot exist in the absence of the mandate. It, it's a very strange idea. It is. But that said, I, I will say one reason I, I don't dismiss anything anymore is that um, I have watched very strange ideas on healthcare, including, by the way, the original mandate case, which was treated by many eminent legal scholars at the beginning, like complete lunacy, uh, get taken very seriously. So I don't think Obamacare is going to get struck down. But the Medicaid challenge was seen as even more frivolous. And now it means five million people don't have health insurance. So it's a very unpredictable like um, lit uh, landscape when you look at like Affordable Care Act litigation. Yes, Clan Show will return after a quick message from our sponsors. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. 
and kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God, but I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So Donald Trump, um, his administration is in court fighting for this to pass, fighting for the bill to be cut apart, fighting for um, the entire thing to be taken out judicially. And he says he's got a better plan than the Affordable Care Act that and, and him and Mike Pence both said it during the debates, they have better plan. It covers everybody with pre-existing conditions, better health care, comprehensive. Um, don't worry about it. Does he? So I have this very distinct memory from January 2016 of being in the Capitol. And the Washington Post reported a story that like Donald Trump has a health care plan and he's going to release it. And exactly like, what you, it covers everybody. And it's, you know, it's going to kind of be an alternative to Obamacare. And like, everyone is like a flutter, like, oh, there's a, there's a Trump health plan. Like he's going to release something. And it's been four years and like the plan is not here. Or sorry, that would have been January 2017 to get my dates right. Um, I mean, this has been a constant of the Trump administration. There, there is no plan. Either there are two options. One, there is no plan. Or two, there's a plan they are not shown anybody that exists in like some secret cavern of the White House you know, he says there's a plan because these protections are really popular. If you look at polling on pre-existing conditions, you know, Republicans and Democrats both agree that they like the part of the Affordable Care Act. They want pre-existing conditions not to exist. Um, and so I think the reason Trump says he will protect pre-existing conditions is because people like to hear that. And I, you know, did a story a few weeks ago talking to voters who think Trump will do a better job on pre-existing conditions. And most of them said, you know, I asked them why they thought that. And they said, because they heard President Trump promise it at a rally or on Facebook or in a tweet. Um, so he says it because it's popular and people like it, but there is no evidence that he has a plan that would do that. You know, the evidence we have is that his Justice Department, like you said, is in court supporting a lawsuit that would roll back protections for pre-existing conditions. One thing behind that is that at this point, I don't know where Republicans in general are on health care. Like, what do what do you think they want to do now? The the kind of set of ideas they had at one point, they're maybe going to replace Obamacare with. It didn't work even within their caucus. Like, do you think there is 
such a thing at the moment as Republican health care policy? I don't see much evidence of it. There's like a bit. So, so I think I see it like nibbling around the edges. You know, if you come back to like the surprise billing stuff, there's a lot of Republicans who are interested in that, like Lamar Alexander, Bill Cassidy have both been leaders. On that issue, you see some legislating around drug prices. Chuck Grassley has been doing some work in that space. But in terms of like, you know, really getting at the issues of like covering Americans and expanding access to health care, I don't think I see much of that. I think, you know, after going through the 2017 effort and throwing out like eight different plans, none of them able to unify a caucus, they really have turn their attention away from it. Um, So I don't think, and it hasn't always been like that. You know, even if you look back at the history of the Affordable Care Act, like the mandate and other policies you see there kind of came out of conservative circles. But I don't really think there is at this point. And I just don't think there's much, you were saying earlier, you know, this is an issue that Democrats like to legislate on. I don't think it's as much of an issue as Republicans like to legislate on. And it certainly isn't an issue they're especially interested in legislating on right now. Like, I think it's going to be a giant mess for, you know, if Republicans control the White House or some chamber of um, Congress when the Supreme Court ruling comes down and if it comes down against Obamacare, like, that's a huge mess for Republicans to try and figure out, like, okay, what do we put in its place? Um, There's, like, no clear thing you pull out of the drawer that's like, this is our thing. And uh, a party that at this point is willing to let during an election year, let this many people suffer without finding a coronavirus stimulus deal with Mitch McConnell now saying that they shouldn't do any deal before the election. Like they won't do anything, right? The Republican Party is perfectly comfortable to sit in the midst of catastrophic policy collapse. But that's the other piece of this. Um, Even if Joe Biden does win, they're going to come in during uh, coronavirus. They're going to come in with an an uninsurance rate that I don't we don't truly know how high it is right now. But coronavirus has pushed it way, way, way higher. Mm -hmm. How do you think about how coronavirus has changed the healthcare system or the healthcare situation? So I think one of the I think if you'd asked me this question a few months ago, I would have had a really different answer. But I actually think the American healthcare system in a lot of ways has just kind of kept chugging on as it knows how and as it knows how is like trying to make as much money as it can generally. Um, So I think, you know, there was back in like April and May and June, you know, when a ton of healthcare was being canceled and people weren't going to the doctors, hospitals were losing so much revenue and it seemed like everything was in a bit of a free fall. But it it seems like things have stabilized decently well. And um, you see, you know, there's new data that came out from the Commonwealth Fund that outpatient visits are basically back to pre-pandemic levels. Um, Kaiser put out a survey, I think yesterday, showing that they expect hospital admissions to be down about like 10% overall this year. I just, I think there was a lot of, and maybe this happens a lot when we're in a moment of crisis where everyone's like, oh my goodness, like everything's about to change. Everything's in chaos. Um, But actually the system seems to be functioning okay. It got a ton of stimulus money. Um, Hospitals, you know, really, you know, and you can debate how much of that was warranted or, or wasn't, but they got a lot of federal funding to stay afloat. And so they're kind of making it through this. You know, I do worry about, 
certain specialties, like pediatricians, I think are really struggling right now. Um, Mental health or behavioral health is another one where I think you're going to see a lot of increased demand on a system that was already pretty strained. Um, And then, you know, the other thing, you know, I think about, but then this actually loops back a little bit to the Affordable Care Act, is it's true, you do have people losing jobs that came with insurance, but you also have this new safety net of the Affordable Care Act, which means that instead of going uninsured, a number of those people are going to be captured by Medicaid or the private marketplaces. Um, And it seems like we have decent evidence, at least a sizable chunk of the jobs being lost are ones that never came with health insurance in the first place. Um, So I guess I, I just it's hard to know now that we're in the middle of this, but you know, I don't know that it's quite as dramatic of a change to the healthcare system as I might have said, you know, if we were having this conversation a few months ago. We've been talking about the healthcare and, and really the health insurance system. But how about literally the health care system? We proved you know, and I think this is a mixture of leadership and the disease and other things, but we were not able to mobilize public health resources nearly as well as we thought. We had a lot of, we we had and have a lot of supply chain problems. Um, there's also just been really big changes in how we get care. There's now a lot more telemedicine. We talk so much about insurance, um, but what do you think about what we've learned or how things have changed in terms of the actual delivery of health care itself and whether or not we do that well or well enough for the, the the world we really live in now. Yeah, I think one of the things that showed is the downsides of having such a fragmented healthcare system. So I think a lot of the times when we think about, you know, like a Canadian or a British system, we think about, oh, the function of this national system is to give everybody health insurance. But there's also this like, coordination function they're playing where they kind of, you know, have an ID number for everybody in the healthcare system and they know who is getting what and like lab reports are getting reported back on that person. And we don't, because we have a system where everyone's on different health insurance and we have all these like private players and public players and they're all, you know, different in different places, a lot of information doesn't get shared in the way it would in a country that had a more national system. You know, I did some reporting a few months ago about how fax machines had become this like breakdown in coronavirus because labs were faxing data to public health departments and sometimes like the person's name was misspelled and because we don't have unique patient identifiers like a lot of nationally national health systems do, you couldn't figure out like whose result went with who or just like sat on the fax machine for a while because we don't have like a electronic reporting system. So I think it really showed in a way I hadn't thought about as much. You know, this is another side effect of having such a fragmented healthcare system is that we just have less of a, we're less able to see the big picture and things get lost and fall through the cracks because you have so many people sharing information and it not always making it there. The flip side of this is one of the most frustrating debates. And I I think in many ways it's a fake debate, but but that I covered in the past decade was debate that took place entirely between people who have health insurance that had no intention of giving it up about whether or not health insurance made anybody healthier. 
And this was often leveraged against Medicaid, but there's no reason to think it was a Medicaid question. It's health insurance is it's a little bit hard to test uh, outcomes on health because there's a lot of confounding factors in, in all this. But you've reported on some recent studies, particularly around Obamacare, that seem to have settled this non-question more conclusively, including a particularly interesting uh, one um, using IRS forms. And I wanted to see if you just talk a little bit about how that how that literature has changed. Yeah, this was a really cool study. And I think the Affordable Care Act has given economists more space to study this issue because it's actually, it's a surprisingly hard issue to study of kind of what health gains do you get from having health insurance because you have a lot of confounding factors. And even though it seems like something that should be simple, it's actually quite complex to design a good study. But basically what this really cool study um, found, it used these IRS forms that were sent out to people who didn't have health insurance just letting them know, like, hey, you can sign up. Here's the marketplace, you know, giving them some resources on how to get coverage. And by, you know, what seemed like a, you know, misfortune, but it was actually a huge stroke of luck, was there was not enough budget to send these out to everybody. So they sent them out to some people randomly, and it became a randomized experiment, and they studied it. So they saw um, that both the people who got the letters were more likely to enroll insurance. And then you could look at the people who did enroll insurance and who didn't, and that you actually saw um, lower mortality, that you actually saw lives being saved by this flurry of letters the IRS had sent out. Um, so I think that literature, you you also see some good literature coming out of um, Medicaid. You know, there is kind of the um, the Oregon Medicaid study, which was done another number of years ago and kind of been one of the gold standards of this research, which looked at when the, the when the state, a similar situation, they wanted to expand coverage, didn't have enough for everybody, did a lottery, and that shows some health gains, but it was never quite powered enough. It didn't have enough participants to show any changes in mortality. Um, but you've seen some other th- research done on Medicaid expansion because of, again, like another accidental random experiment, the Supreme Court saying, you know, states could choose whether to do Medicaid expansion or not. You've seen some researchers exploit that and again show, you know, some positive mortality effects on expanding Medicaid. So I think that literature has come pretty far in the past decade and points more and it has more conclusive evidence about that that health insurance is actually good for your health. I want to go back before we we end here to something you talked about at the beginning, which was this group of payment reforms that were very heavily hyped during Obamacare, this period of time when the idea was that we were going to save money and improve quality simultaneously through this big pay-for-quality revolution, right? And what was going to happen was we were going to use things like PCORI, which I am not even going to try to remember what the acronym was, but it was all this cost-effectiveness research and comparative effectiveness research that was going to tell us what was really good. We were only going to pay for the things that were really good. And so we'd stop paying for things that didn't help, save money that way, and incentivize the use of things that did help and both save money and improve quality that way. It is not my impression this has panned out in a highly scalable way, either for cost or for effectiveness. And so I'm curious if you think there is still a theory of healthcare reform, or there's only really efforts to expand insurance and only really efforts to um, change the way the system is built. Like, do, do you think there's still like an idea about how not to just make insurance more widespread, but how to make how to make healthcare actually better for people, people who maybe even already have it? I think there's like a ton of pay- like you can find endless panel conversations about this and like discussions and theories of it. 
But I, I generally agree with you that I don't think the evidence base has shown to be super compelling. I think you see some cases, I think what you kind of see happen is that you have some really good actors, some people who are really able to do this and they're wonderful case studies, but then you try and scale it across the country or even like across the state or to, you know, a hundred more hospitals. And that's where you don't quite see the same results from scaling. I think over the decade I've been writing about our healthcare system, I've become more skeptical of um, of that kind of work. And there's also a cost to it versus something, you know, a little more blunt, like regulating prices, which is what other countries typically do to keep their health um, costs in line. Um, you know, you have to, it has to be more nuanced and it requires a lot more rules and regulations and like these fancy incentive structures that are, you know, thousands and thousands of pages of regulation to figure out like what bonus you get if you hit a certain quality metric and you, you know, get your costs under this level. I think one of the things those things do is like underestimate the challenge. You have to design a pretty challenging, nuanced policy. And that comes at a cost going that way versus something that's a little more, you know, hitting the nail with the hammer, just saying, okay, you know, the prices are this versus trying to do it in a more holistic way, you know, trying to tackle quality at the same time. Um, so I think I've become a little less um, impressed by those efforts, you know, that were supposed to be, you know, one of the key ways healthcare costs would come under control. And, and then let me ask you one other question on, on this note, which is, I don't know if it's a philosophical question or it's a bigger picture policy question, which is, I do not want here to set doing anything on health insurance in opposition to doing things elsewhere. But one thing I think about a lot is the way our conversation around healthcare and health becomes almost always a conversation about health insurance. And as a premise, health insurance is important. But if you're prioritizing things to do to make the country healthier or the world healthier, at this point, I really do wonder if the top priority should be health insurance expansions versus things like universal pre-K, um, <laughs> prison reform, uh, very, very obviously climate change. Um, we've definitely seen like pandemic preparedness should have been higher on the list. And so I'm just curious where you think the low-hanging fruit is on health itself, not just on health insurance, but what policy priorities in or out of the healthcare system would you put high in the list if what we were simply worrying about was how to get the most health out of another dollar spent? So one one caveat I would give is I, you know, I think being outside of these policy areas, things can seem like low-hanging fruit when actually there's a lot of complexities and nuance that I don't understand. Sure. <laughs> so I just want to say like I do not think any of these problems are easy to solve, but I think there are ones that could have large health gains if solved. But I do not want to suggest like, you know, why haven't we done this yet? It's so easy. I'm sure it's more challenging than I think it is. Um, so I think lead is like a huge, huge one. Um, that's this constant, we see so much research and a growing body of research that lead has negative effects on development. You see a lot of, you know, positive returns on investment. If you abate, if you are able to reduce lead exposure, that one, you know, again, like I'm saying, it's not like we snap our fingers and lead goes away, but that one seems like we have a really strong base of evidence where you could get a lot of health gains by reducing reducing exposure to lead, other toxins, early, particularly early in childhood or, you know, in utero. Another one that's gotten more attention, you know, is... Um, maternal mortality. You know, if we we have the highest 
maternal mortality rate in the in you know developed countries. That's another one where again it's challenging. It's not easy to do, but there are a lot of health gains that could be made, particularly ones that would benefit women of color who have much higher rates of maternal mortality. Um, that's sort of tied to insurance, um, but not super closely. Most women, it, the, the issue isn't that people don't have health insurance when they give birth. You know, most um, Medicaid will cover most low-income women giving birth. It's just all the services being provided before or after that are really falling short for women in the United States. And then I think there's also... Yeah, tie in. I remember there's this weed paper we did on the weeds ages ago that's always stuck with me about um, educational gains. I think maybe it was in Canada. I forget exactly where it was, but it was a paper that basically looked at educational gains from reducing pollution and showed some pretty surprisingly strong results. And that's another one where I think there's a tie in between climate priorities and health priorities that could be pretty powerful. It isn't typically considered a healthcare issue, but that if you were able to reduce some of the pollutants people are you know, running into, that you could see some significant health gains there. I think that's a good place to end. So final question is always three bucks. Okay. I thought about this. I have three bucks. Um, I was going to go, well, I, I have three children's books and then I have three adult books. Um, <laughs> yes, I could use some children's books. So chil- we just started doing books in my household in a serious way. So uh, I'll, I'll take the recommendation. Okay, so my children's book is a trilogy. It's a, So if you're a parent who's a little bored of your children's book, it's the John Classen hat series. They are delightful. The illustrations are really good. My son loves them. Um, I think my, I want my hat back is probably the top one. I won't give too much away because like there's only so many words in a children's book. But um, I highly does, recommend them. Does he get it back? What? Well, does he get it back? You, you got to read the book. Right now. I don't want to give away the ending. You're going to read this book like a thousand times, so it should at least be fresh the first time you read it. Um, <laughs> and then the three books I want to recommend, um, they're all some health policy tie. So the first one, because I get a decent number of emails asking like, what should I read if I want to understand our healthcare system? I really like to recommend is like a first step. It's kind of the first book I read when I was getting into health policy is um, The Healing of America by T.R. Reed. I th- I'm sure you probably read it too, right? I read it. Okay. Um, it's a really nice primer on how different countries' healthcare systems work. And the thing, I, I you know this, Ezra, I'm really interested in international health policy because I think it shows us this menu of options of like what our system could like and it could look like and the different trade-offs each system has to make in order to work. And it's a really nice overview of some European systems. Um, I think Australia's in there. I think you also have Japan in there. Um, So I really like it. And it's super readable. You don't need to be super deep in health policy to understand it. Um, The section on the American system is probably pretty out of date since it was written in 2010. But I still think it's a really nice um, kind of introduction to international health policy and a nice way to understand kind of what if we wanted to reform our health system, what could we do? The second one is going to be um, And the Band Played On by Randy Schultz, um, which is a book about from the 1980s, I believe, or maybe late 80s, early 90s, about the AIDS epidemic and the federal response to it. And I think it's it's probably the most compelling work of narrative journalism that I've read. I might have recommended it on The Weeds at some point, too. Um, it's just an amazing look at this like failure to respond to a public health crisis, which may feel somewhat um, somewhat familiar at this point that really gets inside the CDC and the FDA and a lot of the agencies under scrutiny now 
how they were reacting to the AIDS epidemic. Um, and it was like literally a book I could not put down. It's just so masterfully written. Um, and then the last one's also kind of in the same category. It's going to be Dreamland by Sam Quinones, which is a book about the opioid epidemic and kind of ties between Mexico and the drug companies and the cities these opioids are getting into. Again, it's like a really powerful work of narrative journalism that I felt helped me understand the opioid epidemic a lot better than I did before reading it and was incredibly readable. Like I didn't want to put it down. So so those are those are my book recommendations. Sarah Cliff, it is such a pleasure to get to podcast with you again. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Sarah for being here, of course. Thank you to Roshi Karma for researching, Jeffrey Geld for producing, The Ezra Klein Show, a Vox Media podcast production. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Claude 3 from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point of the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skill and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest-cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic.